As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Hello, everybody. Taylor here with a quick disclaimer. Around 54, 55 minutes, uh, Joe's mic had an issue. Uh, it seems like maybe there was a connection problem, but either way, he goes from uh, crystal clear mic quality to just slightly muddled mic quality. You'll still be able to hear him. He sounds just as wonderful as ever, just slightly muddled, but didn't want you to think you were taking crazy pills. It is indeed a technical issue on our side. Not anything wrong with your device. And with that said, here is Joe, Graham, and me talking about some Americans. Welcome to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Taylor Rockwell, and week one of the 2022 MLS season is in the books. Ryan Bailey is not here today to talk about Charlotte's impressive victory and their 3-0 loss to DC United, but I'm instead joined by two gentlemen who are ready to talk about some Americans poised for big things this season. Up first, the man who knows that week one tells us everything we need to know about the regular season, and you can stop paying attention until the playoffs come around. It's Joe Lowry. Hi, Joe. That's exactly what I was planning on doing. I wasn't yep. planning on telling you or MLS or The Athletic <laughs> that, but I mean, that's what I was planning on doing. I like it. I like it. I mean, that's the way to go, Joe. It really frees up the schedule uh, for the next 33 weeks. <laughs> it uh, really, week, really does. Week one might not give us that much info. We are going to talk about, I, I think, weeks two through 34 in a bit more depth as we go along. Joe, I'm, in, I'm guessing we'll incorporate some of week one into our conversation today. Can you tell our listeners what that conversation is going to be about? Absolutely. So on this show, we want to give ourselves and listeners some U.S. eligible players to watch in MLS this season. So so you, me, and mystery co-host number three, it's Graham. I, I, I'm not going to introduce him, Taylor. That's your job. But Graham is here, and he'll pop out eventually. Spoiler. We, <laughs> I know, right? We want to give you guys some things to watch for, some players to watch for. So we each picked a few Americans in MLS who we find interesting, and we want to talk about why specifically that is. So we each picked a few, and we're going to go through them round-robin style. A lot of the players that we picked likely won't be involved with the U.S. men's national team until after the World Cup. We stayed away from players like Jordan Morris and Aaron Long and Jossie Zardes. We've talked about those players a bunch before, and they're still interesting and valuable, but not as exciting or, or intriguing to me, and I think to you guys as well, 
as some of the other players that we're going to talk about. So a couple of them could be involved before or during the World Cup. I think there's a chance that that happens. But at the very least, we'll see a handful of these players in the U.S. picture after the 2022 World Cup. And, and maybe even before then or around that time, we'll see some of these players make a move to bigger clubs. Some of these guys could be the next Pepe or DK or, or Paredes. And I think that's exciting. And I think a lot of listeners and hopefully you guys do too. So that's what we're here to do. We're going to analyze some of these players. We're going to talk about why we care about them and maybe why you should too. And a view behind the curtain, uh, Joe and Graham had picked their players they were going to talk about. I was still undecided. I was thinking maybe, maybe I'll take a look at Aaron Long. And then I saw Joe's note about how interesting <laughs> that none of us took veteran players. So I decided against that, Joe. I wanted to preserve <laughs> the narrative. Uh, so I've gone a very different direction, but I'll reveal who that is in just a moment. Because we do have one more co-host with us. I was going to leave him in the dark until the end of the episode. But since Joe already mentioned us, <laughs> joining us for this conversation, a man who I assume... Started by watching footage of Americans before slowly shifting to just watching clips of Johnny Russell and Ryan Gold. It's Graham Ruthven. Hi, Graham. Hi. Yes, that's exactly what happened. <laughs> it's like the YouTube rabbit hole, but for Y Scout. It just always leads me back to Ryan Gold scoring headers for Vancouver. I, I like that you were so eager to, I'm assuming, talk about Ryan Gold that you almost forgot to say hello back. <laughs> yeah yeah i did i did hello hello taylor how are you hello hello grim on on the extra time podcast last week uh david goss threw out johnny russell as an mvp candidate Ooh. do you feel like he stole that idea from you but just went for a different scottish player yeah just just picked okay. the other scottish player i mean it was either johnny russell and ryan gold or danny wilson and i'm not entirely sure D- danny wilson is an mvp shout especially given how he played against lafc at the weekend it wasn't great <laughs> uh, so we'll just yeah we'll, we'll, we're just gonna disown him as a scott <laughs> right. i think he actually has caps uh but not for a while graham ruthless when it comes to how he's going to run the scottish fa yeah um, well i mean we steve know. clark has basically disowned gold and russell as well so He's, uh, he's in good company. All right. All right. Well, I think uh, I like that this can be sort of Scotland therapy for Graham, but he can also help us uh, talk about some U.S. players. We are going to do that before we get into Major League Soccer. A few quick updates. First, we talked about it a little bit yesterday on the Weekend Review Show, but Jesse Marsh is officially in charge of Leeds. Graham, everyone in England is being super chill about that appointment, I'm assuming. Oh, Leeds, why did you tweet out Jesse Marsh's US Open Cup title and his supporter shield? I love that, though. (laughs) (laughs) And he was in a Chivas USA shirt as well. Oh, Oh, dear. It was just so MLS. Uh, But yeah, I actually loved it as well. And of course, like people underestimate, certainly in the UK and in England, how difficult it is to win those things. Like They're not just trinkets they hand out. I'd say... Like the supporter shield in particular is very difficult to win in MLS where there's a greater parity than there is in a lot of leagues. And so if you win that as a coach, that is pretty, pretty impressive. But yeah, Leeds, you, you, in a sense, I guess you kind of brought it up upon yourself with that tweet. It was uh, entertaining, shall we say. Was there any backlash, Graham, do you remember, to Bielsa being appointed? Was there that same, No, it's some foreigner, or did he have the reputation enough that they were able to look past that? I think the majority look look past that and were able to see that he had he was kind of a legendary coach. But I have no doubt that someone on Talk Sport, yeah. probably Danny Mills. <laughs> let's just face it, it was Danny Mills or Ray Parler. One of those two had something very ill-informed to say. Yeah, because I always I always think of like the one I always go with was when Yaya Torre was signed by Man City, and they're all the pundits saying like, "Who's this guy? He's got no experience. Yeah. You got to get in somebody who's proven." It's just like, all well, right, the, well, that seems slightly one- unfair. 
the the one that sticks in my mind the most was Pochettino when he he was appointed at Spurs mm-hmm. and Paul Merson on uh, Sky Sports and Soccer Saturday, which at that time everyone watched. Uh, it's kind of faded their use their viewership since then. But anyway, everyone saw it and he went nuts about Pochettino. What has he ever achieved? He's a nobody. He's not gonna he's not gonna succeed in the Premier League. Well, that that aged terribly. That take uh, as Southampton became very good and then he went on to Tottenham and now he's at PSG one of the highest paid coaches in the world. So maybe that's Jesse Marsh's uh, trajectory as well. All right. I would like that. Joe, if you were pointing to a thing from Jesse Marsh's career that you find particularly impressive, if a Leeds fan were to ask you, is it one of those pieces of silverware, either with the Red Bulls or with Red Bull Salzburg? Is it coach of the year in 2015 or is it something else? It's less about any one of those individual, well, I guess, team-wide accolades. Although I do think that's important, right? If you're Leeds United, you'd rather have a coach with silverware than one without it for the most part. Mm -hmm. So I think that is is a part of this, certainly. But for me, with Jesse Marsh, it's about how he gets his teams to buy in, number one, and how he gets them to play as a result of that buy-in, number two. He's so, so good at doing that, or has been at the New York Red Bulls and RB Salzburg, less so at RB Leipzig. And I think there's a lot of reasons for that that we discussed previously But with this Leeds team and the talent they have, I think this is a hugely exciting opportunity for him to mold this group into something that he wants them to be. They have players who can be really dangerous in attacking transition, which is what he thrives on and wants his teams to thrive on. I could see this really being a fun experiment for Leeds and a fun job for Jesse Marsh that eventually propels him to something else or that just propels Leeds higher up the table. All of that with the caveat being... He has to stay up. They they have to stay up this year, right? I mean, if they get relegated, this is a bad situation really, really quickly. There's 12 games left, 12 league games left for Leeds. If they don't escape relegation, they are going to be in a tough spot and Jesse Marsh is going to be taking a lot of heat. My my prediction with Marsh is if he keeps Leeds up and does well in those 12 games, um, he's he's going to do well at Leeds. He's going to have the time over preseason to get some more ideas across. It seems like a good fit, Joe. You say like the squad is a good fit. I totally agree. If he fails in those 12 games and Leeds get relegated, it, it kind of could be, uh, for his European coaching career, it could be, it could be fatal. Um, and because I, I don't know if you recover from, from two, losing two jobs at, at high profile leagues in, in one season that that's kind of difficult to get over that. But I'm, I am hopeful that he will make an impact and Leeds will, will stay up. So no pressure at all for Jesse Marsh. (laughs) Joe, if he needs some uh, defensive support, let's say they do stay up, they're looking for center backs. Should he be putting in a call to John Brooks's agent? Uh, no, but I, I do like the American connection there, Taylor. I don't think Jesse Marsh would love John no? Brooks's lack of defensive mobility, and <laughs> I don't know that he would really utilize John Brooks's left foot in a way that John Brooks would appreciate. So I could see just a, a pretty poor working relationship there. But yeah, John Brooks is out of contract at Wolfsburg at the end of this year, and the club announced today that he will not be back with them next year, which I don't think is surprising really for anyone who's been monitoring this situation. There's been things leaked to the press. There's been back and forths. This doesn't feel like a shock. I, I'm interested to see where John Brooks goes. I would love to see him in Major League Soccer. I don't know that he'll be looking for that move at this point in his career, but he is getting up there, certainly. He has a ton of talent, though, still left in the tank, a ton of ability still left in the tank. I don't know where he's going to go, but I'd expect he's going to get a pretty good move to a pretty good club. I don't know if he has the the goal or the interest in playing in Major League Soccer, if he prefers to stay in Europe, but I think there should be some clubs looking at him for sure. He has the experience. He has 
the the uh, the resume, and I think has the ability still, as you said, Joe. So I hope John Brooks does get some looks. I hope he finds uh, greener pastures elsewhere. I I agree with you. I don't know if those greener pastures would be uh, in Leeds. I don't know if Leeds has green pastures, Graham. Uh, <laughs> what I would like to know uh, from both of you, if if either of you has thoughts on what Leeds. Not not looks like, because I think we've talked about that a little bit with Jesse Marsh, but more so I always reference when Jurgen Klopp took over Liverpool and you could start to see elements of his pressing system come in. You'd mm. see a couple people swarm. You'd see that hunting in packs and you'd start to see when they were pressing and how they were pressing and the pressing triggers coming into play. And and I'm wondering for you both, Joe, we'll start with you. Are there things that you think when you – if we're watching Leeds this weekend or next weekend – You'll you'll sort of start to pick out. Oh, that's a Marsh thing yeah. versus a yeah. Bielsa thing. I think we'll start to see Leeds be a lot more compact, not not dull, not always in a low block. But Jesse Marsh, one of the first things, if I were Jesse Marsh, that I would change, and I think he'll do this, is get the man marking out, get rid of that, and, and be more zonal in how you defend. Right? These are basic things. Get everybody defensively into a zonal four four two block, and then from there you can start to build out and, and plan out your pressing triggers and how you want to step forward and where you want to trap the ball. I think one of the first things that Marsh is going to do is toss that man marking out the window and really get his team in a more modern, realistic defensive structure that then will facilitate attacking transition and chances in that particular phase and will make leads more defensively solid. I mean, they shipped four goals against Tottenham on Saturday. They shipped six goals before that against Liverpool on Wednesday, another four against Manchester United, three before. I mean, the list goes on and on and on and on for this Leeds team. Getting some defensive solidity in this mix, I think, is thing number one, and I expect that to take the form of a a slightly more reserved zonal block with still plenty of flair attached to it eventually. Graham, any any, uh, particular things that you're expecting to see from Leeds under Marsh? Yeah, I, I don't know about the early days because I think the, the the thing I'm going to mention might take a, a little bit of time. But um, Joe and I yesterday on Weekend Review we spoke about the net and how um, Marsh's teams when they're they're out of possession, it's not always a, a high press, but they they move in unison. So even if the ball is over on the left wing, the right winger will move at kind of the same time as everyone else, um, led by the person on the left wing, so that there is that that kind of cohesion and the net kind of covers the the opposition that might that might take take a bit of time on the training pitch and Marsh has just four days before his first game in charge away to Leicester City so it's going to be difficult for him to to implement that immediately the international break at the end of March could be quite uh useful for him but yeah once once Leeds start to play with that out of possession I'll, I'll start to think that he is he's he's getting his ideas across and maybe this is a, is a Marsh team and along with everything that Joe said um that's kind of what I'm looking for all right, so Marsh can use the March window to March's team up the table, theoretically. Got Marsh it. madness. Right. I like this plan. I like this plan. Uh, final question about Jesse Marsh at Leeds. Uh, for either of you, do you all feel like with the way Leeds have been, with uh, with how open they've been, as Joe mentioned, is there is there an argument that like at least he kind of knows what he needs to do or that like he could sort of have an impact sooner because if you get that defensive stability in place and it's basically get people behind the ball, yeah. get people into a, like a formation that lets you kind of set up to play good solid defense, you'll start to see that result. And if they're winning games 1-0 or drawing games 1-1 or 0-0, to me that is progress as opposed to winning some games 2-0 but losing some games 5-0. Yeah. No, Taylor, I I completely agree with that. I think you summarized the outcome of the point I was trying to make with the stylistic change that I think will see under Jesse Marsh better than I did or could have, right? I mean, the the changes aren't rocket science here. Stop shipping goals. That's that's priority number one. (laughs) And I think we'll see that through a different defensive 
structure and through different defensive principles. And then after that, I think the job gets a little bit harder in trying to elevate this team. But in the next month or two, if Marsh can get the players to do those pretty basic things, they should be okay. The problem just becomes then what happens if they're not okay and, and that risk occurs. But still, I think you're wise to point that change out. My, my concern with the defensive side of things is looking at how his Leipzig team played earlier in the season, I, I didn't see a particularly great defensive unit there either. Um, and that was a team, obviously, that he's coming into similarly like Leeds, where he has to impose his own ideas. And yes, there are reasons why Leipzig didn't work. And it, was, it wasn't solely down to Marsh, but he's not, he might be better than Bielsa at constructing a, a defensive unit, but that that's quite a low bar. And I still, uh, you know, if, if Leeds are conceding two goals rather than four or five in a game, that that's still a bad thing. So I, I am genuinely interested to see how it pans out and Same. I am openly rooting for him. I would like an American coach to do well in the Premier League for a number of different reasons. Uh, and I quite like Marsh as a, as a person anyway. He's, he's an easy person to root for. So yeah, I will be keeping a close eye on how he does. As will I, as will Joe, I'm assuming, as will many Americans. I think it's 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 a really interesting appointment because I see reasons why it makes a lot of sense. I see reasons why it could work really well, but it's the Premier League, and it's a really difficult league, and he's jumping into it, and his like kind of first shot at that big position in Europe did not go well. So how he handles the second chance round in the same season, as Graham uh, mentioned previously, it just like there's reasons it could work. There's reasons it could fail spectacularly. I kind of don't know if there's any in between. It either works and they stay up or it doesn't and they go down. And that's pretty much it. So how these uh, next, what, 12 games play out is going to be fascinating. I'm sure we're going to talk about it a lot. But right now, we're going to take a quick break. Then we're going to come back to talk a lot about Major League Soccer. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is supported by Season 3 of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League 2 after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League 1? FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. Welcome back. It's time to talk about Americans in Major League Soccer. Apologies to Graham. No Scots, or at least no Scots <laughs> yet. But Joe, let's get it started. Who should we talk about first? I will be talking about a Scott later, just sort of All in right. relation to another player Ooh. I have. So Graham, hold on for that one. But yeah. I want to start us out here with Paxton Pomichol. This is a name that I'm, I'm pretty sure every single listener of this show will know. 22-year-old central midfielder, former U.S. U-20 World Cup veteran and player for that team under Tab Ramos. He has one cap for the U.S. men's national team. That was against Uruguay in 2019 in a friendly. Uh, th- the big thing with Paxton Pomichol over the past few seasons hasn't really been his play on the field. It's more so been the injuries that have kept him off the field. He's missed at least a chunk of every season of his pro career with injury. 
But man, when he's on the field and when he's central, he is really, really good. And one of the things I'm most excited for this season in MLS in general is hopefully seeing Paxton Pomico play the majority of his minutes in central midfield. He played on the left and on the right for almost all of last season when he was on the field under Luchi Gonzalez. But he's so much better and more influential in the center. And that's what we're seeing so far under Nico Estevez, new uh, head coach for FC Dallas, former U.S. Men's National Team assistant coach under Greg Berhalter. He had Pomico playing as one of those dual eights in front of a number six for FC Dallas against Toronto FC on Saturday. And that's what we expect to see from him throughout this season. Estevez is trying to do a lot of Greg Berhalter type stuff. He's keeping a lot of the principles that Lucha Gonzalez had in place, those possession-oriented kind of principles. But, I mean, he brought in Paul Areola to play as one of those wingers in, in, in a 4-3-3. He has those two eights in front of a number six. The shape looks like the U.S. men's national team. Pomical fits as one of those eights, that buzzsaw kind of player. He's a nightmare for opposing teams to play against when they have the ball. He covers a ton of ground. He covered the 18th most distance in MLS in week one, which is really, really good given how many players were on the field across the league in week one. He's not the fastest guy, but he's really quick in tight spaces, pressures the ball a ton. Offensively, he plays quickly. He plays at top speed almost all the time. And that, I think, prepares him really well to make a jump to the national team level or to a higher league, a higher level league, because the speed of play increases as the player quality increases across the world. He prefers his left foot, but capable with both. He's not the kind of player that's going to rack up a ton of assists or a ton of key passes, most likely. But he's the he's a technical tempo builder kind of player. He can get out of tight spots and get the ball to really dynamic attackers higher up the field. I'm Greg Berhalter. I have my eyes closely on Paxton Pomichol. Coincidentally, Greg Berhalter was at FC Dallas's game on Saturday, and I'm sure had his eyes pretty close on Paxton Pomichol. But he is a real talent. I hope we see a full healthy season from Paxton this year. I hope we see him in central midfield every single minute he's on that field. He's really, really good, you guys. Joe, jumping ahead a lot, uh, <laughs> with the injuries to the current U.S. men's national team, where would Pomacall fit if Berhalter sure. wanted to call him up? Where do you think he fits best, and where could he be utilized if some players aren't available? Really, the only place I'm interested in seeing Paxton Pomacall is as one of those two number eights. It doesn't really matter a whole lot to me if it's on the left side or the right side, but I, I think his his spot is in front of a number six and to the side of another number eight in that triangle midfield with the point at the bottom and the two other points ahead of that that lone pivot. He is the kind of guy who will eat up ground, he'll win, he'll win balls in those spaces, and you want to maximize that value in central midfield. He also is technical, as I mentioned, to get out of some tight spots. You value that. He's not a 1v1 dribble merchant. He's not going to drive at you like Christian Pulisic, despite having played on the wing a lot in his young career. He's someone who I think absolutely belongs in midfield, and if Greg Berhalter is going to use him at some point in the near future or after the World Cup, whenever that comes, I think it has to be as a number eight. And final question for me, at least, you mentioned the injury history. He misses three games last season, 12 the season before that. But there's lots of different injuries. And that in and of itself is disconcerting because some of them are knee surgeries. There's a groin surgery. There's a muscle injury. There's a sprained ankle. And when you get that variety, in some ways to me, it's like, okay, you got to figure out it's a recurring knee issue. We're going to have this one final surgery. And then ideally that fixes it when it's up in the air, when it tends to be varying parts of the body or varying injuries. It can lend itself towards that idea that a player is injury prone. But that aside, fixing the injuries, fixing the, the the fitness so that he's there for the whole season. Is there anything else that you think he especially needs to work on or develop so that he is more likely to get looks from Greg Berhalter? Berhalter is there in Frisco more frequently. I don't think if Paxton Pomkel is healthy, I don't think there's a lot separating him from 
being a part of the national team picture. I don't think he starts over Musa or McKenney right now, but man, he's, he's not really all that far off from some of those guys in the depth chart in my mind. He's probably better than a lot of the eights that Brothers called in over the last few years on a regular basis. As far as things I'd like him to improve though, I don't think a lot defensively can or should change for Paxton Pomichol, but with the ball at his feet, I mentioned how he's not the kind of guy to rack up a ton of assists or key passes, but you know why not become that guy? I know that's hard. It's a lot simpler to say it than to do it, but he has some of the technical quality and some of the vision to become a dangerous player in terms of goals and assists. That, for me, if we could see this Nico Estevez team really take off this season in Dallas, I would love to see Pomichol be a more reliable end product kind of guy. I don't know how likely that is to happen, but I would love to see it, you guys. And I do think the injury issue is a, a concern. Huge. It's huge. I, it is. I think it's just also, I, I hope this doesn't sound ableist, but like uh, when I was at MLS All-Star in Orlando, seeing Paxton Pomacall and like there, there are times because I think we have these expectations because of the NBA and the NFL that we think all of these players are are seven feet tall. They're not. A lot of them are pretty small. Paxton Pomacall is, I think, only five eight, and that might be with cleats on. And I remember him standing next to Hector Herrera, who is <laughs> I, slightly taller. I think he's like six foot. Six he's a fullback, one. is what he he's is. Got, yeah, he's got like twenty pounds on him, I think. And it was just noticeable that size difference. And I imagine him them going into challenges if one of one of them is coming away injured. I have a feeling I can guess who it is. So maybe there's a little bit of that that's just going to be inevitable. But I do hope that we see Paxton Pomacall on the pitch as often as possible because I very much enjoy seeing him playing for club and country. Graham Ruffin, where should we head next? We've talked about Paxton Pomacall. Which American do you want to talk about uh, as number two? So we're going to head up the East Coast to uh, New York, Harrison, New Jersey, to be precise. And it's a, res- a rule that there is always a promising young left fullback of on course. the East Coast in MLS. Last season, it was Kevin <laughs> Paredes, who has since left DC United for Wolfsburg. And this season, we have John Tolkien for the New York Red Bulls. He uh, actually made his MLS debut last May, and he's since be- made a, a number of league appearances for the, for the Red Bulls. He has been a rotation option for them for a while. However, the difference this season is that he doesn't have Andrew Gutman ahead of him in his position, and Tolkien is expected to be first choice at left-back or left-wing-back for the Red Bulls this season. He, looking at his uh, opening weekend of the season, he played on the left side of... Uh, uh, the Red Bulls 3-4-2-1 formation and uh, the 3-1-1 over San Jose. And he had a very good game. Um, he made two key passes, got a shot away, made two dribbles, two tackles, five interceptions, um, which was more than any other Red Bulls player on the pitch. I thought looking at the, the game tape, he gave the Red Bulls width and attacking support throughout the match. And it, it, that performance sort of backed up the predictions of those who say he is going to to have a big season in, in MLS this year. As I say, he is going to be first choice, so he's going to get that game time. And looking at how he plays, what his qualities are, he's energetic. He is mobile, so he can get up and down the pitch very quickly. He is um, He's also pretty good at switching the play and finding a long pass. Tolkien is in the 90th percentile for completed long passes in, in MLS over the last year. He's also in the 71st percentile for progressive passes. And given what I have seen of him, that, that isn't too surprising at all. When Tolkien gets the ball, he is very quick to try and get it forward. Last season, there were times when Struber shifted him into midfield. But I think Tolkien's natural qualities make left-back or left-wing-back as he played at the weekend and as that system, Struber system this season, it looks like he's going to favour a system with wing-backs. Um, that feels like his most natural and most effective position. 
One slight thing, um, I, I'm always fascinated by players who have really long throw-ins, and he has a very long, long throw-in. And unlike Weston McKinney, I actually think he takes his legally. He doesn't kind of do that <laughs> spin thing, Taylor, that you've that you've yeah. mentioned before that McKinney does, and no one has really picked him up on yet. I think uh, I think Tolkien actually can just. I think he legitimately just has a very long, long throw-in. And there were times I always think people look at that, and I do it myself. They always look at that quality as as a. Uh, a bit of a novelty. Um, mm. But the Red Bulls made good use of that against San Jose. And there were times when they had everyone in the box and they were they were causing a bit of chaos and Tolkien was the one who was able to get the ball in from the throw-in. So anyway, that that was just a, a, a small thing I noticed about his game. He, as I say, very energetic, very mobile, and I think he's going to be uh, an important player for the Red Bulls this year. Can, Can I add one, one thing to that? I've, I've got a, I guess it's an addition and a question, Graham. I don't know if you've sure. ever seen him play as a central midfielder, but he's done some of that in the past for the Red Bulls. I mm-hmm. think that adds an interesting layer to his game. I remember a few weeks ago, a month ago now, we talked about uh, Robinson right on the left side for the U.S. men's national team as that more mid-2010s fullback. And I think Tolkien has a lot of those traits. You mentioned him providing width and doing a lot of that that classic fullback, wingback kind of stuff. But I think he also has little bits and pieces of a true modern fullback now and what that position yeah. has become. Think budget, 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 dollar store, dollar store, dollar general, Trent Alexander-Arnold, <laughs> right? In terms of positioning, think uh, Jao Cancelo is probably a better option, actually. Someone who will come inside, occupy that half space, or just be positioned in that space from the start of games. Ha- have you seen that from him, number one? And do you think that actually adds another layer to his game? So against San Jose at the weekend, and I did go back and look at some of uh, some of his other performances. But I guess with the the slight system shift from Struber, I'm I'm kind of looking at how he'll he'll play this season. Sure, but sure. He was he was I think he was being instructed to maintain the width on that left side. He was he was hugging the the touchline a lot, but there were times when he would drive inside and he would do that. It wasn't so much the Cancelo thing because Cancelo tends to push up to be a central midfielder and then stay there. But I mentioned before about Kevin Paredes that he does the kind of Kieran Tierney thing where he'll, instead of going out to the, to the wide, uh, to the, to the wing, he will cut inside and, and drive through the middle. And there were times when, when he was doing that against San Jose. I think his final product could do with a little bit of work. His decision making was slightly rushed when he would get into the, into the final third. But yeah, absolutely. There were times when you could see that he has played through the middle before. And um, that I guess that can only help him and, and be a more varied player. If he has, if he is going to be a wing back for the rest of his career, then, as you say, Joe, the trend is for players who can cut inside and play through the middle, and, and he can do that. Uh, Graham, you've mentioned a few different ways in which he caught your eye. Uh, should we talk about his hairstyle at this point? Oh, <laughs> it's it's something. I mean, I, I did um, as a, as I say, they were playing uh, San Jose at the weekend, and I did wonder if Cade Cowell and John Tolkien ever thought they would meet someone else on the same pitch with hair like they have. <laughs> like, what? A, how much of a shock that was for either of them? Like, oh, there's another. There's someone else who's gone that it's wild. The- it's the Spider-Man meme of them pointing at each other. Yeah, exactly. It is, it is something. Uh, he, I do wonder, sometimes with, with young players, they'll do something with their hair earlier in their career that uh, you look back 10 years later and go, that, that, was, that was a choice. <laughs> I do wonder if John Tolkien's going to be one of those players. It's, for, yeah. Forgive me, how old is he, Graham? He's 19, um, so still yeah. very young. Actually, the oldest, I have leaned very young with my selections uh, here. He's actually the oldest right. of the three that I've picked, but yeah, he's 19. I just think it's amazing if you search him, like for a 19 year old, there are a lot of different styles. He changes it up. He, he's, he's changing yep. with the times. I like it. Sometimes it's, 
it's more traditional. Sometimes it's it's bleach blonde. Sometimes it's long. Sometimes it's shaved on the side. He's got variety, and I like it. I like it, John Tolkien. Uh, I like when I play FIFA 22. This is my transition. I will try to sign uh, young Americans, promising young Americans, especially when I'm playing for like a Bundesliga mid-table team, and I'm trying to get them some talent. And I will sometimes look for promising Americans. One name that I was not ready to see was Matko Miljevic, uh, who is uh, a U.S. eligible player. That was that was news to me. Joe, did you know that? Because I was kind of in the dark on that one. I did. I think he's got like U.S., Croatian, and Argentinian tri-nationality. Is that mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. You are correct, my friend. And it's not that big of a surprise since he has played for the U.S. at U16 and U20 level. But yeah, born in Miami in May of 2001. Parents left Argentina due to economic depression. Grandfather born in Croatia and now Bosnia. But he does have a Croatian passport. Uh, so could have played, can play for either of the three. Returned to Argentina when he was 10. Played for Argentinos uh, Juniors. I'm sure I'm mispronouncing that from 2011 to 2021. And now back with Montreal has played for Argentina at youth uh, level and then the U.S. as well. And I shouldn't say back with Montreal, I guess back in North America, uh, playing for Montreal against Orlando, uh, Montreal on a 3-5-2 of sorts. And he was one of the front two. It sometimes looked like that kind of 3-4-2-1. And for uh, being unfamiliar with him, I'm going to turn it to you, Joe, to ask for your thoughts on him. But I saw, like, from your conversation in the preview about Montreal and the way they want to have more possession, I saw ways in which he will facilitate that. I also saw ways in which, if they need to be vertical and aggressive, he can do that, too. He has a slightly, slightly Jardin Shakiri build, I think, which yeah. means I, it only stands out to me because it means he's going to kind of be okay playing back to goal. I saw, the, saw a lot of ones where he has the ball kind of driven into his feet in midfield, and he rides a challenge and then turns and plays forward, or at least... Like handles that challenge and then plays it back or plays it lateral. And I think he's good in those sort of scrappy moments and will fight for loose balls, but then also does a good job of patrolling midfield, also does a good job of retaining possession. Uh, it's only the one game that I've seen him in, but it was a, a promising start. Joe, I turned it to you to destroy all of my hopes and dreams about Miljevich. No, not necessarily. I, th- right. I think I agree with a lot of what you brought there, Taylor. He does have that Shakiri kind of built. I never thought about it in that way, but he's a little squatter, a little lower to the ground, which helps facilitate how he likes to play. He likes to drop in, especially when he's a part of that forward line. Wilfred Nance will use the the wide attackers, not even wide attackers, they're really dual attacking midfielders or just a second forward to drop into midfield and either form a box or just form some sort of midfield overload. Emilievich likes to do that. He likes to drop in. He shows regularly some pretty nice skill with his right foot especially. He likes to dribble. He over dribbles a little bit at times. And I think that's something that hopefully Nance and, and this Montreal team can, can get him out of slightly. I'm not trying to take all of his flair away by any means, but I think he has mm-hmm. that tendency, which sometimes disrupts Montreal's attacking rhythm. It, it makes them look disjointed at times in possession, but he's very skillful. He has a lot of quality and I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing a full season from him under Montreal, in Montreal under Nance, because I believe Taylor, correct me if I'm wrong. I think he came in mid season last year for them and hasn't yeah. played a ton in MLS still this could be a chance for him to really have a breakout kind of year yeah Uh, and and I hope that he does because I think there's a world in which he helps the United States either youth level or at senior level down the road but I think he could be a central midfielder he could be used as like a wide attacker uh, and I think offers a lot of different things so hopefully he has a strong season hopefully he stays on the radar another player very briefly who I wanted to mention when it comes to potential dual nationals we had a question about him I did some digging, and it seems like Artur 
could soon potentially, maybe possibly, be USMNT eligible. Our tour of Columbus uh, from Brazil, first signed for Columbus on loan in February of 2017, goes back to Brazil, but that was a short enough time period that it would technically count as vacation, which doesn't count against uh, the five-year residency that is required. Uh, The loan was made permanent. He's been in Columbus ever since. No appearances for Brazil uh, at any level, which means... There wouldn't have to be a one-time switch, which he couldn't file because of the way the rules work. So because he doesn't have to worry about that, he could play for the U.S. He's married to an American, has said he has interest in playing for the United States. I don't know where he is in his citizenship, but it's an interesting one. That said, Joe, I don't know if he makes the U.S. significantly better right away. It feels like another player that could be in a January camp, could be competition, brings energy, brings ball winning ability and passing ability. But I don't know if he is a next level performer for the United States the way he is for maybe Columbus. I love Artur's game, but Taylor, I'm totally with you. I don't think he slots into the U.S. starting midfield anytime soon and and really maybe ever at this point. But he's a good depth option and has quality that I think would be worth bringing him into a January camp type of situation. All right, Joe. So I I shoehorned in two there. Let's go back to you to get your second player that you think could have a big season this year in Major League Soccer. Well, yeah, you did all that transitioning work for me because I'm standing in Columbus here. Miguel Berry Damn. is the next player for me. I've mentioned Miguel Berry a lot, and maybe listeners are getting kind of sick of that. But I think it's for a good reason, not you all being sick, but me mentioning him a lot. I think he's a really, <laughs> really good player. 24-year-old striker, born in Spain uh, to American parents, moved back to the U.S. when he was young. He's wearing, uh, guys, he's wearing Miguel on the back of his jersey this year, which I think is just such a power move. Huge fan of that. Huge fan of Miguel Barry, or just Miguel at this point. No, I'm, I'm still yeah. calling him Barry. But still, last year was his first season getting minutes in Major League Soccer. He played just under 850 minutes, scored eight goals. Already has one goal this year, too, by the way. He picked that up against Vancouver over the weekend he outperformed his xg last year so that level of production with basically a goal every 100 minutes isn't likely to repeat itself this year it's not impossible but it's pretty darn unlikely but he still finished last season as one of the top xg getters in mls on a per 90 minute basis which means he is pretty darn good at getting the ball in good spots which i think is the most important skill for a striker so he's six foot two six foot three right footed big frame a pretty traditional number nine in a lot of senses he can be an outlet with with his big frame and hold the ball up tends to have pretty clean touches in those moments especially for being a big guy likes to stay higher in the build-up generally lets the players around him do a lot of the work in possession and then gets involved in the box and that's really where he's so dangerous he can be a threat in the air on set pieces or on crosses in open play He lumbers around a bit, but has enough speed to get in transition and and really get into the box in those moments, too. And he sees space inside the 18. He's active in the box. He's looking for a near post run. He's looking to use his height at the back post. He's dangerous. And even with a team that has Giassi Zardes on it, he's going to be a big player. Caleb Porter started him over the weekend over Giassi Zardes. Basically said, we have to reward him for the work he put in at the end of last season. And Barry rewarded him with a goal. I mean, this is going to be, for me, another one of the most interesting positional storylines in Major League Soccer. Who gets the lion's share of those minutes? Because, you know, in the past, it was pretty obvious that it was Giassi Zardes. This year, and even dating back to last year, it's not so clear. I think we're going to see a lot of Miguel Barry this year with Caleb Porter and the Columbus crew. Joe, two questions. First of all, I don't appreciate that uh, FOTMOB has him listed as uh, Spanish. Uh, let's get him listed <laughs> as American if you could make that happen. Yeah. Uh, but the second thing, uh, forgive me if I misheard. You said uh, 850 minutes last season, eight goals, but you yep. weren't sure if he would uh, replicate those numbers again. Are you saying he'll do more or less? 
Well, I think he will score more goals than eight okay. this year, but I think it will take him like a, a greater ratio of minutes mm-hmm. to do that. Does that make sense? Like he'll score at a lower rate, but I, I would be very surprised if he certainly doesn't hit double digits and maybe even approaching 15 or 20 goals this year. And maybe this is the part that you've already said clearly and I uh, missed because I was taking frantic notes. Uh, so if you expect him to score more goals, if he has that frame, if he does have the good touch, what is the thing that's holding him back? What is the next thing he needs to develop to make him more effective or more efficient or whatever it might be? I think just getting minutes. I know that's not really an answer to your question, but like I said, this past season, 2021, was his first year in MLS. He played some in USL before that, but he'd never gotten a chance to really get a run out on the field in Major League Soccer. I think he just needs to continue to prove himself and, and really show that, okay, I scored a lot of goals in a short amount of time last year. That wasn't a fluke. And I don't think it is, but it wasn't a fluke. That's what Miguel Berry needs to be showing. Greg Berhalter needs to be showing Caleb Porter and everyone who has a stake in him as a player. And once that happens, I think we are talking about him in the U.S. men's national team number nine depth chart. I don't know if that's before the World Cup. Really? I, I kind of doubt it is. But, I mean... Yeah, with the numbers he's putting up and with what I'm seeing on on the field from Miguel Berry, there's a lot to like, you guys. Joe, a personal question, and then Graham, I'll ask you the same question. With the with the sort of the depth that we do have at number nine, but the uh, lack of quality. Uh, yeah, I didn't want to go that harsh with it. I was just <laughs> going to say like the unproven depth. Maybe sure, it's like sure. there's still question marks about every single option there, like. Basically, is it if he went on a tear, if Miguel Berry scored in the first like five games, are you sort of of the opinion that he automatically should be in that conversation? Or would you prefer to see Burhalter kind of go with the pool he has and narrow that down to the people that best fit the system? Oh, man. Graham, what do you think about this? <laughs> I would, I, <laughs> Good work, I, Joe. <laughs> in that hypothetical situation, he'd be in the in the roster for me because I think okay. it's it's the position on the pitch where Berhalter has that has the least kind of settled. Um, mm-hmm. So like if 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 uh, McKenney Adams and Musa are in poor form or something like that, there's been there's been enough in their US performances as a unit to suggest that that you should stick with that as a unit. Whereas in attack, it's all up for grabs and particularly when that number nine spot. So if someone um, does go on a hot streak, I, I absolutely think it should be enough to get them into at least a discussion. But I would even in some of the camps have them in, have them in the camps or give them a, some, some minutes in games because it's, it's a position that heading into that World Cup at the end of the year, the US definitely in my eyes doesn't have sorted out yet. Yeah, I'll retweet that, I think. I mean, why not, right? I mean, why why not? No one has really established mm-hmm. themselves above anybody else in this number nine depth chart. Pepe was in good form for a while. He scored a bunch of goals. That's retreated at this point. He's not getting much of anything at Augsburg right now, which was the danger going into that move. Daryl Dike's hurt. Josh Sargent plays for Norwich. Jassi Zardes isn't getting minutes over Miguel. I mean, it's this is a tough one. I think getting the hot hand involved in a camp is not the worst idea. This all, I think comes from, I had this idea last night that maybe as a 101 or just a TSS episode, we should do a how to build a World Cup roster show. Not that any of us has any experience with it, but just kind of (laughs) talking about some of the permutations, the variations that tend to happen, because historically there is a player who catches fire or becomes eligible or whatever it might be that gets added very late or hasn't been in a bunch of World Cup qualifiers, but they're in form or whatever might have happened that gets them into that roster. If Barry is maybe has a slow start, but then is on fire closer to like the end of the season, if we're talking about him being really good form in August or September, are we okay with Burhalter 
rolling the dice then if things remain as they are presently? Or is there a time period for either of you, Graham, I'll come to you again, uh, when you would rather it be, nope, we're kind of sticking with the guys that have been there. We want to develop this roster, get them reps together, get them fully ready for the World Cup, not be adding in new components at the very last minute. So there's this is where I, because it's a Winter World Cup, I'm not entirely sure what the international yeah. schedule is. Is there a window in September this year? I'm, for, I'm not matches? sure we know that yet, or if it's out there, I don't know that. <laughs> okay, well, normally there is a window in September, and yeah. if that is the case this year in 2022, I would say that's your that's your cutoff point. You don't really want to be um, going into an international tournament with someone who hasn't played any minutes at all with the team. Um, so yeah, I would say Man. September, if that window still exists, that's that's probably the cutoff point for me. I'm- I'm glad you mentioned that, Graham, because historically that is also the window because we're coming like you're coming out of a World Cup that year. And that tends to be when coaches do just sort of give the everybody that went to the World Cup that break. And you are going to try some other people. Maybe you'll have a few of the veterans back in there, but it's an experimental uh, game. And that would be the ideal team to bring in Barry if they were going to see what he can do if he were in that form. So maybe it just fits. You stick with it. We bring him in September. I'm glad that we've resolved it. Graham Ruffin, uh, good stuff. (laughs) Greg Berhalter should hire you. Greg Berhalter also, if he's listening, probably wants to hear about the next player that you'd like to mention, Graham. Yeah, he does. So we're <laughs> we're already very familiar with one Aronson who has come through the Philadelphia Union. And now there's another one. There's two of them. His 18-year-old uh, younger brother, Paxson Aronson. Um, he made his first league start in August, last August. He marked that start with a brilliant goal um, that was very Brendan Aronson-esque. There was technical ability, directness, and then an explosive finish past the goalkeeper as well. It was quite the way to announce yourself uh, in MLS. And as far as I can see, Paxton and Brendan, they do possess similar skill sets as players, which is, is very exciting for the union because obviously Brendan is a, a hugely talented player who's who made his mark in MLS and um, is now with Red Bull Salzburg and has been linked with Leeds United and maybe that move is happening in the summer and obviously he's a, he's a US international. So if Paxton can live up to that then they've got some some player in their hands he's he scored three goals in 16 league appearances for uh, Philadelphia that was last year and I think many expect him to have an even bigger season this year he hasn't been rushed into that team so he only played 15 minutes um, of the opening weekend game against Minnesota there um, but it, I think it's reasonable to expect that he will get more and more game time over over the course of the season. Uh, positionally, looking at where he is best, I think he's he's most comfortable in a central attacking midfield position. That's where he played at, at, against Minnesota there. But he's also pretty comfortable drifting out to the out to the left, and he can operate from that position as well. Technically speaking, he is exceptionally talented. The ball sticks to his feet. He can change direction quickly. He can beat a man. Put simply, he is a very good dribbler. As I say, he, he can go both in both direction, uh, directions. He commits defenders in a way that isn't always common in the modern game. I feel like I used to see more players like Pax Narison like 10, 15 years ago. And it is exhilarating to see him go at opposition defenders in the way that he does. And I watched some of his kind of uh, youth games, not senior MLS games and some of the, the games for um, the, the youth US teams as well. And you can see in the way he dribbles and he goes past defenders that he's he's at a higher level to pretty much everyone at that at that um that stage that that youth level and so I do think he is ready at 18 years old for senior senior football. Um, in terms of his shooting, there also tends to be a a, a final product to Paxton Arson's play. He's in the 93rd percentile for shots and target per 90 minute. 
and he's in the 99th percentile for shots on target percentage, 75%. He averages 0.44 goals per 90 minutes, and that sample size is obviously relatively small, but that's a very high ratio and places him in the 89th percentile for players in his position in MLS over the last year. So he is a very, very talented player who I think Philadelphia Union and US soccer in general should expect big things from in the future. Uh, Graham, uh, clarification question. You've heard me say some phrases you weren't familiar with. When you say good to see him commit defenders, is that getting the defenders to commit to a 1v1? Is that him committing to going at the defender or am I missing it entirely? So do you remember we talked about how Dortmund defended the Augsburg goal at the weekend <laughs> on weekend review? That is when yes. you don't, when when a defender doesn't commit, when they just okay. track, they keep kind of jockeying and tracking back and they don't actually engage in a tackle. Mm-hmm. I would consider com- a committing a defender as forcing them into a decision where they have to do something. And obviously then the the... the the thing that separates out the player is after committing that defender, whether you can beat them. And Aaron Paxton Aronson is very good at beating them. So he's, I would, I would simplify it as he's very good at forcing defenders into making decisions that they don't want to make and having to make an intervention that they don't want to make. And he got about 15 minutes uh, plus injury time this weekend in the opener against Minnesota. What do you think it would take for him to get more regular starts? I'm assuming an injury to one of the uh, the starting four. But Graham, do you have an idea of where he would best fit for this fella or where he is most likely to get minutes for Philly this season? Well, I think in that I think in that central attacking okay. midfield position, which is where he, he came on in, in the weekend. And if you're asking me, this might be a very simplistic uh, answer, but what's the thing that's going to get him more minutes is mm-hmm. producing more moments like what what he he did in his first start. You know, explosive moments, something that that um, catches the eye. Obviously, Philadelphia are a very good team already, so they they feel like they don't need to rush him as as they as I say. And I have to say, there's there's no need for Paxton Harrison to to ru- rush either. There has been talk about him going to to Europe. Obviously, his brother went to Europe, but his brother kind of established himself a little bit in MLS before he he went over there. And um, I I want Paxton Harrison to stay and become a first team figure for the Philadelphia Union. I think game time is there from this season. Um, in that central attacking midfield position for 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 the union, and um, yeah, don't don't rush it, Pax. And I'd say like twenty twenty two, become a first team figure for for Philly, and then maybe once you get up to kind of twenty twenty one years old, that that's maybe the time to move on. But he he's a hugely exciting player, and I, I just can't believe how. You know, we've seen brothers in professional soccer before, plenty of them, but I can't really recall two brothers who are so close to each other in terms of their, their skill set and profile of, as players. It, it really does kind of feel like there's there's two of them. I think a, a huge part of that is their upbringing, right? Not in the familial sense, but in terms of where they've grown in a soccer system. They're both union players. They both have that Red Bull influence, and that's Ernst Tanner's background. They have that high-pressing, direct influence in their soccer upbringing. So they, they both have a lot of those traits, high energy, all the things you've mentioned, Graham. The one thing that I think Paxton is a lot better at than Brendan is he's he's much more creative in, in tight spaces, and he's more of a player that I think really could end with assists and could play a lot of really dangerous balls into the box. He comes off the bench against Minnesota United and his first involvement is a really creative outside the foot pass to a player running in behind. He's much more of the the classic number 10 with a twist of the union's high energy aggressive style in his game too. And that has me really excited about this kid. I think where I remain sort of confused and Graham you may have just answered it with just be patient and see how things play out but I Mm -hmm. look at that Philly midfield 
Like Flock feels pretty stable, set there. Martinez the same. Bedoya even the same. Bedoya obviously the veteran and feels like the one who maybe could yeah. be eased out of the starting 11 more regularly than some of those other names. And then the number 10 who starts against Minnesota would be Gazdag. And not a DP, but like has been with Philly... I guess, is this his second season? Second season, Joe? yeah. Okay. I, th- I think, Taylor, I think Gosdog is the guy that's going to be benched for Aronson. You think? I, I really okay. do. I mean, he's a player who they spent real money on, which makes this a pretty influential move for me. Jim Curtin, right? Yeah. But I don't think Gosdog provided much at all against Minnesota United. I wasn't particularly impressed with him last season. It's still early, and he's not been in, in Philly for all that long, so I'm not throwing him out. But I, I think if Aronson's going to get us uh, some minutes in midfield, it's going to be as that 10, as Graham said, in the diamond. Or if Curtin changes to maybe more of a 4-3-2-1 a with attacking midfielders underneath the 9, he could be one of those two in that 4-3-2-1. Yeah. But either way, I think Gazdog's minutes are going to decline, and I think Aronson's minutes are going to incline as the season goes you, on. You, you, probably, you probably could play him instead of Bedoya as well. But obviously Bedoya's playing in a, in a deeper role on the right side yep. of that, that midfield three predominantly. And that's maybe not where you're going to get Paxton Aronson playing his, his best soccer. So I agree with I agree with Joe Gazdak. Despite the, the money paid for him and everything, he, it feels like that is a position that Paxton Aronson could upgrade on for, for the Union. I think, I think he has got all the ability in the world. I think he um, is so naturally talented. And yeah, US soccer should be pretty excited about him. And for those of you who've been yelling into your AirPods or have already tweeted at us, I would say the the comparison that most jumps to mind when I think of the Aronson brothers, Aronson brothers would be the Mewis sisters. And I do look forward to U.S. soccer having Sam and Christy Mewis versus Brendan and Paxton Aronson in some sort of like soccer tennis slash familial triv- trivia contest. They seem to like that. So I, I would I would enjoy that one. I would enjoy yeah. seeing how they. They if they did mixed doubles, I want to know what, which team wins that one. I, I have a lot of plans for the Mewis Aronson partnership. Yeah, this is some golden social media content. U.S. Yeah. soccer. Yeah, there, there's an idea for free for you there from Mr. Rockwell. <laughs> uh, another player who I think will will generate some clicks this season. Seamless transition for me is Jesus Ferreira. I would say maybe one of the more established names uh, of this list uh, is the starting center forward, number nine, false nine, whatever you want to go with for FC Dallas. And I think their goal against Toronto this weekend is sort of the blueprint for the season. Uh, It's basically Dallas aggressively countering the counter from Toronto and it's Ferreira uh, tracking back. There's a heavy touch. He wins the ball and like does the thing where as he wins it, is also passing with the first touch. So he basically immediately facilitates the counterattack, turns, sprints into the box as the ball is played wide, crashes goal, defenders focus on him, Ariola pings one through the middle, Obrey on there at the back post, and you get a goal. Um, the concern would be that is how it works, and it's not Ferreira scoring. It's him dropping in to facilitate play. He did that a lot uh, against Toronto, and this is the obvious thing with a false nine. Matt Doyle talked about it uh, in his uh, week one write-up. It's the idea that if he's doing that and then playing forward, oftentimes that leaves him 20, 30, 40 yards behind the play. And if you want him then getting into the box to help create chances, that's a tougher ask. There's a world in which I see him it better as FC Dallas in a 4-2-3-1 and Jesus Ferrer playing as that number 10 in there. But then I don't think he has the creative freedom or the license to kind of roam where he wants and be that pressing false nine. So I think it's 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 one of those situations in which FC Dallas might not look as sharp in the beginning of the season as I think they will later because it's going to be about how they figure out how to 
make sure that they have numbers go central when Jesus Ferreira drops in, or if, they, if they're going to utilize that gap, how they're still able to create chances from the channels cutting inside. Um, once they get some of those ryth- rhythms and patterns down, I think they'll be okay. Joe, do you have any of these same concerns about the way Ferreira is being used by Dallas this season? I have some concerns. I want to see Jesus Ferreira score goals. You know, like yep. that's, that's really what I want to see. And I want him to do that. And this is asking a lot. I recognize while also doing a lot of the technical dropping into midfield stuff that he's so darn good at. I don't know exactly how you blend those two things. And it's hard. And I think Taylor, to your point, it's going to take some time for all of this to come together in Dallas to get Alan Velasco in and actually able to play in a game and to get Paul Ariola and Velasco firing on the wings and Ferreira dropping in and connecting with Paxton Pomichol and, and Cerillo and Cervania and whoever's in that midfield for them. There were only four passes between Paxton Pomichol and Jesus Ferreira, you know, over this past weekend. That's not a lot between no. your best number eight, who's playing pretty high up the field and your number nine, who's dropping back into midfield. Those connections need to grow stronger and that will take time. But I also just want to see Ferreira making those runs into the box, being really dangerous in those spaces. I think he can do that. I'm just hoping we see that throughout this 2022 season. And I really do think he is one of the most interesting players to watch in the league this season. And that's not just because of the USMNT angle. I think even if he were uh, an international player, I think he does so many things well for Dallas but it seems like they have to figure out what specifically they want him to do well so that other people can then score goals. Or if they want him to score goals, they have to have other people doing some of the things he does to facilitate that play. But I look at moments in the 22nd minute. He drops in, picks up a loose ball under pressure, like evades that pressure, turns and plays forward. And that is great. But again, he's 40 yards behind the play. And I don't know what the trade-off is there of keeping him closer to goal and making him more of a goal threat. But if you're not winning that ball back centrally, if you're not creating those opportunities, then he's not getting the ball and he's starved for service. So I think it will be this gradual adjustment over the season, over the first few weeks, as they try to figure out how to make sure you're playing to all of his strengths while still getting goals. I think FC Dallas are going to be a really fun team to watch, a really interesting team to watch. And Jesus Ferreira is a big, big part of why that's the case. Anything for you, Graham Ruthman, when it comes to Jesus Ferreira? Or are you still just mad at me because I didn't also have a Paxton as one of my (laughs) Yeah, you you should have completed the set, completed the trio with one of your own. Um, I'm actually just mulling over in my head when it comes to Jesus Ferreira. Of all the, we were talking about the the USMNT um, depth pool and and attack there. Because he offers something slightly different, and obviously he starts that, I do this every time, I forget the order of the last window. Was it the El Salvador game that was first? El Salvador. He starts that game, and, and the idea is that he, you know, he drops deep and he offers something a little bit different. Because he does that, is he maybe more certain, if anyone can be certain, of his place in that in that roster for the World Cup than maybe someone of his standing being a young striker who's just kind of getting going in MLS would ordinarily be? Is, is, is his skill set and profile actually pushing him up into that discussion further than would normally be the case? Joe, I have uh, goldfish brain. It's well documented. But I would say, yeah, there's, there's, there's a good amount of truth there, Graham, because... You can score the goals, but when you're talking about the person who drops in and facilitates, there are other names in there who do that. He is probably number one in my mind. Joe, how off base am I? He's absolutely the best option to connect. If you want a nine that's going to drop in and link play, he is that guy over anyone else in the U.S. pool right now. The question is how that translates into goals. But really, that's the question with every single darn player in this nine pool right now, right? I mean, that's the challenge that U.S. soccer on the men's side is facing Ferreira had really good chances in that El Salvador game, chances that I do believe will lead to goals eventually. 
I think, Graham, to your initial point, his different skill set, his unique skill set in the context of this nine pool adds a lot of value and maybe gets him on that plane to Qatar if the U.S. is on that plane at all. I think I think he is the other reason why I think FC Dallas are so interesting this season and why Jesus Ferreira is a big part of that is just because it's the first time we're going to see him leading that line. It's been Ricardo Pepe previously, Jesus Ferreira on occasion, but he is the man now, basically. And there will be other options who can rotate in and they can try different stuff. But we're going to get this massive sample size to see, okay, he's done it on occasion for the United States. He's done it on occasion for North Texas or for FC Dallas. But how does he do it week in, week out? How does he evolve his game? How does he strengthen it? I'm really happy that we get this season with him for him so we have a better sample size to know what he is capable of or what he is not capable of. And then we know, yeah, we'd love to have him on there, but he does this really well. He doesn't do this well enough. And I think we'll have some answers as the season goes on. And that's kind of all we can hope for at this point. Uh, While I uh, continue to rue my lack of Paxton on my list, we're going to take one more break and we're going to finish it up with our final three players to be discussed. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer, if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Welcome back to the Total Soccer Show. We continue to talk about Americans who will be in action in Major League Soccer this season. Joe, you've given us two players. Give us your final one. Graham went a little on the younger side. I'm going a little on the older side, not that old. But Brian White, 26-year-old striker for the Vancouver Whitecaps. I mean, yeah, he's he's over the hill at this point, you guys. You already know. Drafted (laughs) by the New York Red Bulls in 2018, was traded to the Whitecaps last year in June. That trade really unlocked Brian White. He'd scored 13 goals in his entire Red Bull career with the New York Red Bulls, I should stress. But then went on to score 12 goals with the Whitecaps in just under 2,000 minutes with them last season. So he scored one fewer goal with Vancouver, just at the the last two-thirds of last season, he scored just one less than he'd scored with the Red Bulls. So, I mean, that says a lot about what Brian White was able to do under Mark Dos Santos, but then under Vanny Sartini towards the end of last season with the Whitecaps. It's a pretty solid scoring record, that 12 and 2,000 minutes. And Vancouver evidently thought so, too, because they just signed him to an extension through 2025 with a team option for 2026. Brian White is is not dissimilar from Miguel Berry in a lot of ways. He's right-footed. He's shorter. He's only five foot ten, but he's got some hops and can really get up there. He can be dangerous in the air like Berry is. He's good with his back to goal. He likes to hold the ball up. Doesn't drop in a ton. He's more of that traditional classic nine in that sense. He's not elite. He's not elite in his speed or his separation ability, but he holds, again, he holds the ball up and he can be dangerous in short little spaces which lends itself, lends his skill set lends itself well to White being dangerous in the box, which is really the space that he's dangerous in. He sees space, and he makes well-timed runs into those different spaces inside the 18. That's the trait we see across every good goal-scoring number, uh, number nine, every good goal-scoring striker. He cleans up a lot of garbage. He cleans up a lot of garbage in the box. 
I'm not breaking a ton of new ground here on Brian White. He is a, a very strong, very serviceable number nine in Major League Soccer, and he's another candidate if he's really strong this season in terms of his goal-scoring form and in, in terms of where he's moving inside the 18. He's another guy that could be on the list of Greg Brother saying, hey, nothing else has worked, let's try this. I'm also interested in Graham. You had to wait almost an hour to me to get to this point, but I'm interested to see a full season of Ryan Gold. There, there's the Scottish reference I, I teased earlier. Sound the horn. Yeah, the sound gold the horn. horn. I want to see a full season of Gold and Brian White playing together. And, and Gold started against Columbus in that 4-0 loss for Vancouver over the weekend. Brian White did not. He's dealing with a little bit of a foot issue right now. But I want to see those guys play together for 2,500 minutes, for 3,000 minutes this season to see what kind of chemistry they can develop, how good they could be in transition, which I think will be a big part of Vancouver this year, what they can do in possession in terms of combination play, in terms of Gold, finding White in the box. That's something I'm certainly going to have my eye on this year. Graham, how how excited are you for Vancouver as a Scotland fan? And with your kind of combined interest now of Scotland with the USMNT, we're slowly making you into a USMNT fan. <laughs> if not first, then a close second to Scotland. Uh, is Vancouver going to be your team that you're watching week in, week out? I mean, I was more excited about their season before they got smashed by Columbus yeah, on the opening it. weekend. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but generally, yes. Fairweather I fan. Am. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, glory hunter. Um, I, yeah, generally I am excited. Like, obviously, the second half of last season was probably the best we've ever seen Ryan Gold in the context of Ryan Gold for um, MLS fans who maybe don't know is Ryan Gold from a very, very young age was hyped as Scottish football's next big thing at a time when we didn't really have many big things at all. So he's always had a, a bit of a spotlight on him. He goes to Portugal to sport in Lisbon and, and a pretty high profile move. And then he fades away. And then a couple of years ago, he's back all of a sudden and, he, and he's brilliant and he's one of the best players in Portugal. And then he goes to Vancouver and he's, he's brilliant there as well. So yeah, it, it is exciting because it feels like finally we're getting the player we thought we were getting when Gold was, was 17, 18. But Vancouver in general, I have found them an, an entertaining team to to watch since uh, Sartini's come into that into that side and um I did have high hopes for the season it's still early days maybe that 4-0 defeat is is a bit of a false flag but um yeah definitely keeping an eye out for them this season if only for uh Mr. Gold <laughs> and Joe uh final question for you uh, about Brian White uh like if you are serving as an advisor to Greg Berhalter which I'm now choosing to believe that you are what is the thing you think Greg Berhalter wants to see Brian Don't White tell improve that. <laughs> um, what, what do you think he wants to see him improve if he is going to consider him for the U.S.? Maybe just even more precision with his hold-up play, more precision with those runs into the box. And similar to Barry, just play more, score more goals. We still don't have the biggest sample size on some of these players, White certainly more so than Barry. But get into the box, score a bunch of goals, and then at that point, see what happens with the national team. All right. I like it. Uh, so we are almost complete with our list we've got two more graham who are we talking about next so we're heading back over to the east coast this time to dc united mm-hmm. and we're gonna have a look at um, moses nyman who yeah. is an 18 year old midfielder and um, mu- much like paxton aronson a lot of hype around him maybe not as as much hype but a lot of uh, people have high expectations of him i think it's fair to say he made his mls debut for dc united a, a little while ago and um, back in in august 2020 since then he has played 30 senior league games and he has earned himself a reputation as i say as one of the players who could be set to become a big thing in mls this could in particular 2022 this could be nyman's year he has been a rotation option until now, certainly last year, 2021, 
he now looks likely to be a, a starter for DC United this season. He started in the win over Charlotte FC on opening weekend. And while it wasn't the absolute best game he has ever had or the best game I've seen him have, there was still enough in that performance to suggest he's going to be very important for DC this year. In terms of his natural skill set, he does two things very well, primarily. He makes progressive passes and he disrupts opponents in a, in a defensive sense. For DC United, these two things are very important qualities because of the, the direct physical style that, that, that they play. He's in the 81st percentile for progressive carries per 90 minutes, and he's in the 77th percentile for carries into the final third. And then I've got a third stat here, a carry stat. He's in the 68th percentile for carries into the opposition penalty box. So all of those are, are very impressive. He's good at switching play and picking out a teammate. I couldn't actually find that in his, his stat sheet on FB ref, anything to kind of, prove that so I'm kind of using the eye test a little bit there when I was using Y Scout I I picked out a number of crossfield passes and diagonal passes and he definitely has that in, in his arsenal um, and that in itself give D, gives DC United a, a weapon it, it allows them to unsettle oppositions I always like midfielders who can switch the play quickly because it it just changes the dynamic of an attack he is very um, looking at him on the ball as well. He's very press resistant. The 94th percentile for passes under pressure. He knows how to break lines with his passing as well. He's in the 68th percentile for through balls per 90 minutes. And um, then looking at his off the ball qualities, he is a, a disruptive force as a defender as well. He is. An, uh, I'm throwing a lot of stats out here. Sorry. Well, maybe this is no, what Joe's been waiting for um, all his life. Yeah. Joe's so happy. <laughs> He's in the He's in the 86th percentile for tackles per 90 minutes and the 95th percentile for pressures per 90 minutes. So all the way through his defensive numbers, there is good stuff to to, to pick out. There's tackles and intercept, interceptions in there, very high um, numbers there as well. And he's a two-way midfielder that allows DC United to play with a double pivot in the centre of the pitch. And I know there have been concerns um, about DC United this season. We mentioned them in our, in our season previews. Maybe they take a step backwards this season. They have lost a little bit of individual quality, certainly with uh, Paul Areola leaving the club in the off-season. But if if Nyman can continue his upward trajectory, and I know he plays a different position to Arula, so I'm making a general point about individual quality. But if he continues his his development, I think he could. He's one of the players that DC have that could maybe challenge that perception that they are they are going to take a step backwards this season. And um, yeah, he could be a very important player for them. Greg, did you watch the the Charlotte game like live, or were you watching it this weekend no. because of Ryan's interest, or did you just watch like bits and pieces afterwards? No, I I didn't watch it live. Okay. I, I uh, spared myself that. <laughs> <laughs> I was just wondering, like, if you're watching Moses Nyman, what is the thing that sort of jumps out to you, just, like away from the stats, away from the data, away from the the clips? Like, is there anything in particular that that like stands out, or? Because this is the case with some young players, it can just be that they're like being in the team and not standing out in a bad way is also sort of a positive. So is it that he stands out for like particular things or does he not stand out, which in and of itself can be a positive? I think the the thing that stands out about him is is that two-way quality that uh, that I mentioned. So he is he's very good at carrying the ball. I don't think he's a he's a kind of hub for possession like he's not he's not I know I'm kind of contradicting myself slightly because I did say that he's he's good at switching play and diagonal passes but in terms of being sort of a a pass master and someone you know some central midfielders just kind of they they're a hub for the ball all the time they're on the ball all the time and they're the ones dictating play that that's not really his game maybe he does have that quality but I, I haven't really seen that from him 
just yet. So I, I am, um, I'm always wary of typecasting players um, on the basis of their energy. That word gets thrown around a lot and it doesn't really mean a great deal. And I'm probably guilty of that. But it's, it's a term that, that comes to mind with Moses Nyman is, you know, he, he drives the ball forwards and he wins the ball going back the other way very quickly. So that, that's kind of the thing that, that stands out to me. And, and particularly in a team that plays a double pivot, that's so important. And I think we're seeing more and more players. We kind of, we kind of fell out of um, in soccer the trend of having two-way players mm-hmm. um, because I think we started to, to a lot of teams started to play the, the midfield three, and we're kind of coming back to the double pivot and having two players in the centre doing everything all on their own. I think Moses Nyman is is very good at making that system work. Putting it, put it this way: if Jesse Marsh and Xavi of Barcelona are drafting teams based on the players we've mentioned here. Feels like he fits in well with what Jesse Marsh wants to do and the way he wants to progress the yes. ball versus kind of tight possession, tiki-taka passing. 100%. Yeah, yeah he's, he's, a, he's a Marsh sort of player, like vertical movements, um, where, whereas, as I say, he's not a pass master, so maybe he doesn't get into a Zavi team. And maybe, to be honest, he maybe he doesn't get into the USMNT right now because they don't play that that double pivot. Maybe he can, maybe he can potentially do... I guess what Yunus Musa does, but even then, I don't think that's a particularly great kind of comparison between the two. So it, it would maybe take Berhalter switching to that midfield too, which doesn't seem likely in the near future for for Nyman to to be in that picture. And I and I'll say on a personal note, uh, it can be frustrating as a DC fan when you don't get the kind of marquee signings. There was Rooney, there was Lucharu, but we haven't had that in some time and didn't have that for a long time before that. But if the if the kind of makeup is that you do get these young players coming through, I'm sort of okay with it because Moses Nyman is one going back to like our trap door soccer days. We were talking about when he was making his debut for Loudoun County, and that was I don't know two years ago at least. Like he was he was maybe 16 at that point. So to see him sort of continuing the ideal trajectory, such that he is now starting in Major League Soccer as an 18 year old. Pretty, pretty positive uh, sign between him and Griffin Yao. I think DC have more reasons for optimism slash potential sales down the road. Uh, so, Graham, thank you for making me even happier about DC United than I already was with the 3-0 win over Ryan Bailey's uh, Charlotte FC in your face, <laughs> Ryan Bailey. My final player that I wanted to mention, uh, I, I, I zigged a little bit here because I was going through the possible list of players that I could look at, and I don't know if it was just my mood, I don't know if it was the lack of sleep or a sick baby, just nobody was really that exciting. It was all just sort of like, yeah, that was fine. Like, I've watched a lot of Kellen Acosta trying to figure out, like, could he be the number six? And a bunch of different players. In the end, I've gone for Gabriel Slonina, uh, the goalkeeper for the Chicago Fire, um, who... I really don't know anything about or didn't know anything about. That's part of the reason why I chose to uh, to watch some of him from this past weekend versus Miami. Um, and I think part of that is because he's been in and around the U.S. national team. He's called into that December camp, doesn't make an appearance, but is involved and we would expect will be involved with the U-20s later this year. But also because Matt Turner misses the first game of the season due to a foot injury. There's reports that Zach Steffen is also out for Man City due to injury. And suddenly there's a reminder that there is good goalkeeper depth for the U.S. men's national team. But if you're missing a couple players, the question marks start popping up really fast. Slonina, I don't think, is going to be a starter for the U.S. anytime soon. But he has started for Chicago 11 games last year as a 17-year-old. Turns 18 in May, already starting uh, games this year for them and will be their regular starter. And I think from what I watched of the Miami game... 
he's basically good at most things. He's pretty good across the board. His distribution was fine. He wasn't under a ton of pressure, which meant it was a lot of the sort of short 20-yard passes to a center back. But when he had to, he could ping it diagonally. He could hit some long balls. I thought those were pretty good. He had some good reaction saves. There's two from Lassiter that are from distance that he sees very late because they're through traffic. He gets down well. He he parries it wide. Uh Pretty good shot stopper. He spills one, but then is there to make the rebound that I think the attacker would have been offside anyway. And the big thing I saw for him being 17 was just a lot of organizing. When he makes a save, he's immediately back up and not just getting his positioning right, but also making sure that people are stepping or tracking or marking as they need to be. And that sort of double awareness is super impressive for a 17-year-old, and it's a thing you really want to see your goalkeeper have. And my final thing for Slonina is just that he is a homegrown guy. He's, I think, 22 miles from downtown Chicago. He's from Addison, Illinois. Uh, 22 miles might seem like a lot, but when you look at their old Bridgeview Stadium, and it was about 16 miles from downtown, not that big of a difference. So for him to be in the Chicago area, playing for Chicago Fire already as a teenager with I would assume more starts and more looks to come. Uh, reason for enthusiasm for Chicago, who haven't had that for some for some time, but this Chicago team I think will be pretty fun this season. Joe Lowry, any thoughts on Gabriel Slonina or the Chicago Fire? I think he's a huge goalkeeping prospect, and maybe more than a prospect right now, given that he is the number yep. one for Chicago. He makes this incredible save against Ariel Lasseter in Miami yeah. this past weekend. He gets down to his left. The shot's coming to the corner, the, the bottom left corner of, of the goal from Slonina's perspective. It's coming in hot, and he gets down and parries yeah. it wide, and it is a phenomenal save. He's been statistically, and, and to the eye test, which are not different in this case really, a really good shot stopper. I mean, he's been at the very least above average in his time with Chicago last year and at the start of this season. I think he's a, a really strong prospect right now and a player that has an incredibly bright future. And just very, like, unemotional is the other thing. I don't know why that matters, but I've played for teams that have the screaming goalkeeper, and I've played for teams that have the silent goalkeeper, and I don't really enjoy either either of those. They create anxiety for very different reasons, but it's a similar level of anxiety. But the goalkeeper who makes the save and gets up and has that momentary celebration, but then is right back to locked-in focus, directing traffic, I think that's all... Just really positive signs. I don't know how the season will go for him. I don't know how it will go for the fire. But that is one more reason for me to pay attention to them than there was maybe last season until he started uh, some of those games. So we get a goalkeeper in there. I don't know if we've actually formed an ideal starting 11. I think we're going to be pretty attack heavy. I don't know if we had any center backs in that conversation. So maybe that's (laughs) a show for a later date. For now, gentlemen, anything else to add or shall we call this one a day? Let's call it, baby. Defending is for boring right. people anyway. You know, we, we, we're attackers here. Yeah, we need some. Yeah, we're going to go with a goalkeeper, one defender, one midfielder, nine forwards. Let's, let's make it happen, gentlemen. For now, Beautiful. Graham Ruthven, thank you so much for talking so much about America and send a little bit about Scotland. <laughs> no problem, Taylor. It's always a pleasure. <laughs> uh, Joe Lowry, thank you for talking about a whole bunch of Americans today. Oh, you got it, Taylor. Listeners, thank you all so much for listening. Uh, the four of us will be back uh, on Thursday to do some listener questions. We're going to have a 101 episode. We'll have Allocation Disorder Friday. And tomorrow, the return of the Cooligans. We're talking about their trip to England and the documentary they made about it. Uh, so look forward to that. I know I will be. But for now, thanks so much for listening. And we'll talk to you again very soon. 